Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. We created this community for students and for industry to join together as a community and talk sports and really it just be what's going on, what is the future looking like, and have a little bit of fun. Okay, fantastic. So welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. Uh, you're here with Prof Dan and Prof Walls tonight with an unbelievable, amazing woman, Shireen Ahmed. Uh, we're so excited to have you here this evening. And you know, Dan and I were chatting earlier just to get ready for chatting with you. And two words Dan said, and I said, that is exactly how I would describe Shireen, which is she seems to be a spark and a firecracker. <laughs> I use the words provocative. Um, you know, I absolutely love your opinion and I also love your stance and your activism. So we were very fortunate to meet from Anka Jess from She's for Sports when we had the panel in the GXS lab in January of 2020 and got a chance to have a few conversations with you, but also listen to your podcast and read some of your work in, in The Athletic and, and The Globe and Mail and other articles. One thing that stood out to me, because I was wondering uh, where footy bed sheets came from, and I looked it up and I looked at your website, shereenahmed.com, and I saw that you did a blog in 2012. And something that resonated with me because I am Polish and that you use the word babushka. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so we used to, uh, you know, my grand, my great grandmother would wear a babushka. Uh, we called her, uh, we call it Zhaju and Bobsha, but yeah, the babushka in terms of a scarf on your head. So uh, yeah, this is, I love that you're like, where does that come from? And you post it right away and say, this is where it comes from. And in that, you have a quote that says that you are from a generation that is an empowered Pakistani Canadian Muslim woman. I love the fact that you're empowered and that you're a woman and that you're Pakistani and you're Canadian. But I just love the fact that you're empowered. Um, so what gives you that empowerment? Why, why, why do you feel that way? And, and is this, is this generational or is this part of your family culture or in just how you were raised? Thanks so much for having me. Those are great questions, Prof Walls. Um, um, I think the concept of empowerment is something that becomes a journey. Um, I'm not feeling particularly empowered by this ring light that is fighting with me at the moment, <laughs> but, um, what it is, is I think for me, it, it's very much a concept that I've struggled with. Uh, what does empowerment mean to different people? And, you know, if you read writings of the Gloria Steinem, via the Audre Lorde, and what do they mean by empowerment? And it's such a personal journey. So I think for me, part of the empowerment was to be able to act on my agency. And I say something that I, uh, I said on that She's for Sports panel that seems years ago now, that was actually only in January when I think we first met in person, um, was very much this concept of having a voice. And I, I don't want to conflate that because with agency, I think everybody has a voice, not everybody has the opportunity to act on their agency or be amplified. So this concept of voiceless, particularly used on, you know, Muslim majority countries or women from traditional backgrounds or in the global South, as you would have it, that's typically used to describe them that they're voiceless. And that's part of this trope that I want to break down is that they're not voiceless. And in the words of the great, you know, Arundhati Roy, they are preferably unheard. And that is, I think, 
to understand that made me more empowered is also having the opportunity to bring up other people and amplify. So what I do in the work that I do is definitely reporting, opining on sports and the intersections of race and gender, but as 100% I'm committed to mentoring BIPOC students of color or students that are queer or students that are disabled. And I mean, aspiring sports journalists, particularly because it's an industry where that's not often done. So empowering, and I really mean that. And it's also a bit of that, if you say it enough, you begin to believe it. So I think when I started writing about that, you know, I'm still constantly battling imposter syndrome. So, um, and even battling the concept of imposter syndrome because a dear friend of mine was explaining to me today, yay for Queen, she's a professor at Queen's of kinesiology. Dr. Courtney Sito was telling me that you should refuse um, imposter syndrome because it's still a concept embedded from white patriarchy. So reject it and don't use that term, just reject it. But still, so it's, it's empowering also for me personally, being, means being able to unlearn. So part of my journey is unlearning the things, whether it's heteronormative principles in sport, whether it's you know, not understanding enough about trans community, not understanding enough interfaith-wise, cross-culturally, being, you know, having anti-indigeneity embedded into my understanding of sports and you know everything so being able to unlearn all of that that's empowered so uh i love what uh courtney doctors uh how do you say her last name sito sito okay i've never actually met her but i have uh seen her recent work on on racism in hockey Mm -hmm. but dr sito uh, makes a very good point in terms of imposter syndrome, and and I have used that before too. And it's inter- I I would agree that it is a uh, well like a, a white um, privilege supremacy cons- construct. Mm-hmm. I also think that it is something that, uh, and I, I'm going to grossly generalize, and I don't know the answer to this, but you might. Is it also? gender related it, do men use this as many uh, do you think as uh, uh, from a gender perspective as women because i think i hear a lot of young women saying this and i see a lot of i hear it um uh women mid-career saying it uh the, you know in terms of accepting their accomplishments or realizing wait a second their achievements are unbelievable and did i actually do that and then you realize yeah i did do that women tend to use the word we versus i uh, and, and that is widely known um, in research. So is, is, it, is there gender involved in this as well? When I first came across the term, I think 2014, I had seen it written by a friend and a mentor. Her name's Pasanth Matar, a Ryerson graduate who's a producer, a radio producer. And she had written about it because she was also mentoring young women. And I remember reading it. And although she's younger than me in age, I remember being like, oh my goodness. She's just explained everything that I'm feeling. So I hadn't read about it until then. But all I had read about it when I started to really look into it was always from women. And it was particularly, you know, in the crowd in the, that I tried to read from and learn from more and more was our BIPOC. Uh, like, you know, and I think that it was very much um, a situation where I had assumed it was gender and I shouldn't have it because, you know, that also that whole sort of joke of, a white men in mediocrity and they don't suffer from it because they have this confidence 
that they just have because of privilege and the way that society affords them opportunity. So, but I, I did read the, an article a couple of years ago, I can't remember, from a man who was writing from that perspective. And it really opened my eyes to be, oh, okay, so it, it's based on insecurity and based on what we're taught to believe. And I do believe men, I did some more work and understanding about body dysmorphia in men. And that led me to believe that, okay, male athletes. And um, I was like, wait a minute. Oh, okay. So I think that I don't have an answer per se, but from my understanding and my own reading, it's what I've read, I've read more about it from women, but that could also be construed that men are being shamed about it and perhaps might not write about it. So I'm not going to assume that they don't ever struggle, but the stuff that I've read has majority been of, from women. So let's talk about women and the NW, the National <laughs> Women's Soccer. This is, this is unbelievable. They're the first pro team to go back. Yeah. Um, they have just announced some incredible new sponsorships, Global, uh, sorry, Google being one of them mm -hmm. and a global organization, but they still lack funding. They, st <laughs> they still have not won their equal pay. Um, we all agree that this, this needs to change and every effort possible. Um, returning to sport, seeing them play, being the first to, to uh, have a game, have games and do it successfully. This is also your sport. You love soccer. I do. You love soccer. So we're happy to see the uh, <laughs> National Women's Soccer jump back into, into play. I was. Um, I, I didn't hesitate in spending the $6 for CBS at All Access, which I've never done before. Like, I don't, can't remember the last time I watched CBS, but that's okay. And I think that when you break it down, like I've seen things, just on that note about the access to soccer, I've seen people on Twitter say, if you can't afford this, we'll help you. So I've seen communities within the online watching community say, you know, I've seen people sharing passwords. I've seen people saying, here, if you can't do this, use my login. Like, there's sharing, and that generally happens in the women's soccer community. Um, I love the women's soccer community in North America. It's different to the one in Europe that I'm also acquainted with. Um, and we are the first pro sports team back in this continent. Um, as we know, like, uh, football in, in Germany had returned the Frauen Bundesliga, did go start again in the men's Premier League, of which I also watch. Um, but NWSL is close to my heart. Um, you know, half of the Canadian women's national team play there, some of the best players in the world play there. So I have been really, really um, sort of that thirst has been quenched a little bit. Because if you think about where I was a year ago, I was in France covering the actual World Cup in a completely different, completely different environment. Like I was surrounded by people surrounded in like, you know, different stadiums in France. And, and now I'm at home with my TV and my cat, if she's interested in the late games, like she's not really interested in the late matches, but um, that's it. But I'm still, because of that online community, um, we're tweeting, we're in uh, groups together, we're WhatsApping, DMing, like exchanging ideas, all that kind of stuff. So that's been extremely, extremely um, fulfilling. And it's like, there's a big part of us that are in sports media. And as somebody who worked on Burn It All Down, the sports podcast that I co-host we were thinking when COVID happened what are we going to talk about when there's no sports there was plenty to talk about because we do the intersections of politics and even now as NWSL has begun 
you know, the, the case was, the case of the U.S. Women's National Team was given a decision that nobody saw coming, but it doesn't mean the fight doesn't stop. It will be appealed and was starting the process of appeal. But, you know, as far as the sponsors go, you have Budweiser, you have Secret. There are all these corporate sponsors that are beginning to really get it and really build on that. And part of the movement that we've seen of athletes, you know, particularly led by Megan Rapinoe, um, talking about Black Lives Matter and issues, particularly in Pride Month. So it, there's a leadership that we see there. Crystal Dunn has been very active in speaking. Um, I think that, you know, we've seen incredible amounts of movement, not just on the pitch, but what I love about the NWSL is the movement off the pitch and that activism, whether it's the Portland Thorns and their supporters group are known to be anti-oppressive, um, like the Rose City Riveters, whom I love. And, you know, you'll see Captain Christine Sinclair, who I refer to as co-prime minister of this country because I love her. Um, she'll, she'll walk around with a shirt talking about inclusion and, and allowing for refugees take solace like she's casually walking to practice and this is what she's wearing so it's a part of that culture there's a culture of anti-oppression and you know nwsl is one of the places where the fans don't say stick to sports because as women soccer fans we already know that sports are inherently political we understand this so we're it's nice to be it's refreshing as somebody who loves ice hockey and is canadian there's a lot of stick to sports uh, coming at, you know, criticism, particularly in the work that I do and generally. So we don't get that rhetoric and that's really nice. You know, it was pretty cool, Shireen, that you had a chance to watch it on CBS. Some of the numbers came out about the ratings for that first game between Portland and North Carolina, which of course featured Steph Stephanie Labby in goal for North Carolina <laughs> yeah. and Sinclair for Portland yeah. um, and North Carolina, you know, Labby got the best of, of Sinclair that game yeah. and they're actually 2-0 in the Challenge Cup so far, but I don't know if you saw the ratings, mm -hmm. but it was the most watched NWSL game in yep. its history and not just by a little bit, but 572,000 mm -hmm. viewers tuned in for that game. I think I had read that the previous record was 190,000 back in August of 2014. So yep. kudos to the NWSL for getting that head start. I guess with that push and pull, that discussion, should sports return? Why are we doing this? I mean, certainly for a league like the NWSL, who, who needs that added exposure, they're taking full advantage of that right now. Yeah, I, I saw the numbers uh, at, we, we talked about them on Burn It All Down last week, and it was 570, I think it was. And some people might argue, well, that's because it's the first, first sport back. But I'm not going to get into those discussions. I'm going to say, look, you magnify and amplify a product, which we know is amazing. The most watched game in the history of U.S. broadcast and television is a women's soccer game. We've already know the stats from last year and from the previous World Cup where at in 2015, the final of Japan versus the United States was until very recently, the most watched game in the history of the United, like history of, of US sports. So I think that's important. And these numbers are what we use for those of us that collect this information and that, you know, just want to share it just to fight back against those that say nobody watches women's sports. Actually, I don't discount the possibility, Coach Dan, 
Prof. Dan, that there are a bunch of men sitting in their basements watching this, this tournament. I think they are that are sitting there. It's not something to be ashamed about, but that have previously criticized it. But now they're in the matches that we're watching. It's not one sided where you'll see sometimes in different leagues where they bulldoze. There's none of that happening. The matches are riveting. In fact, Washington and Houston was wild. Like it was like three, three in the last two minutes and then went like Ciara King ended up scoring with one minute left. It was, it's some of the best football I've watched and I consume a lot of it. And it's been really riveting, invigorating. And, you know, football in its essence, it's a long game. It's a long match. And sometimes it can be boring. I'm not one of those people that's going to lie and say soccer is always exciting. Sometimes you've got boring matches. This tournament, however, has been every single day or every time there's on, on game day, there's always one match that's really outstanding. So, yeah, people are watching for sure. Yeah, I love that point. And, you know, it's... Uh... It is a riveting format. So just the format alone lends itself to, uh, to excitement because, uh, you know, it's really kind of like a mini World Cup and how it's set up. So it's, it's great to see. And listen, I, I really, it sounds like this is uh, only going to build on this early momentum and just, uh, you know, sort of take us through. I know the league, um, well, no league is perfect and there's certainly always issues behind the scenes. I think the this particular league did a beautiful job of managing the Orlando situation. Yeah. Maybe, you know, going from nine teams to eight teams might've been a blessing just to have an even number of teams, obviously unfortunate what happened to the Orlando team, but nonetheless, uh, seamlessly transitioned and so far so very good. They did. And I think, I think something to note and props to them, there's no precedent for any of this. Not, not of us, including universities. I'm sure you all had to like rejig everything really quickly. There's no, there's no handbook on how to handle a global pandemic that shuts everything down. I mean, this was dealt with, with creativity, with a lot of collaboration. And when Orlando Pride did withdraw, they started supporting and they changed their Twitter handle to a Challenge Cup fan account, a Stan account, which I thought was so great and just was a testament to the way that they operate. Well, we can't participate in this and we're wishing health for our players, but we also will support the ones that are. And I just, I love that so much. I just, it, it makes, it gives me the warm fuzzies. So speaking, speaking of tournaments, uh, right now we're seeing in sports in general, athletes uh, concerned for their health and safety and rightly so. They're concerned um, and they're opting out of the season and they're opting out of tournaments. Dan, um, you're seeing this as well. And what are your comments? And, and this is your space. Well, I mean, I'll start off before I kind of get to that point. And it, it's, it is such an interesting thing. And I've, 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 I think the ultimate question being asked here is like, why are we doing this? And it's the, the question the athletes are posing. Why are we doing this? Well, you know, we'll start with the tidbit of news here that Patrick, Mahomes, the star quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, signs a 12-year, $427.6 million deal, guaranteed money um, today, which beat out the previous largest American sports contract, which was held by Major League Baseball's Mike Trout, who a year ago signed for $426 million. Now, these are big numbers, only a million difference, but just getting to the point of Mike Trout, 
who may not earn that money this season because his wife is pregnant with the couple's mm -hmm. first child. And he has been, I mean, he is the face of Major League Baseball and he stands for everything that's good about the sport, at least from an on-field standpoint. Um, and he's questioning whether or not he even wants to play and why they would move forward with this. Um, you know, another baseball player, uh, Jeff Samarju, who plays for the San Francisco Giants, came out on Friday and said, I think, you know, we've seen from the owners they're not afraid to put anyone at risk, especially if it makes them money. So unlike the spirit, I think, Shireen, that you described with Orlando changing to a fan account and people really being on board in the spirit of mm -hmm. doing this the right way and supporting each other, there's a lot of mistrust right now in baseball, and they, and they, can't, they can't really seem to get out of each other's way, for lack of a better term. There have been issues with respect to the the testing that have had general managers and front offices irate. Um, of course, there was the issue with, would we welcome back the Toronto Blue Jays to come back to Canada as American born players to cross the border where special exceptions were made there. Um, we've seen it in the NBA, high profile names, DeAndre Jordan of the Brooklyn mm -hmm. Nets, Victor Oladipo of the Indiana Pacers. Mm -hmm. We've seen you know, David Price, who just signed a lucrative uh, or was traded, pardon me, to the L.A. Dodgers, is set to make millions and millions of dollars. He won't play. And just as a quick point, Freddie Freeman, who was born in California, but he has dual citizenship. His parents um, are both uh, from Canada. Uh, he got very ill with COVID-19 mm -hmm. and he's currently sick. So even if he was quarantined, he's not even going to be ready to play on opening day. So again, players wonder what's worth it. The big issue for me to just try to summarize this point is, you know, it seems like there's almost a bit of a cavalier attitude when it comes to, oh, well, if a player gets COVID, we'll just quarantine them for two weeks and then they'll be able to return to play. We'll try to keep them separate. You know, my biggest concern is what if a player, an athlete, and I imagine if we look at the statistics, you know, if a thousand athletes were to contract COVID-19, could the possibility be that one of them could actually die from it and, and have that be on the heads of owners or on the heads of commissioners or leagues who decide that it's prudent and worthwhile to move forward. So I obviously, of course, you'd hate to see that happen, but are all players going to wear masks? Are all players going to follow the protocols put in place to make sure everyone's protected? You know, I'm not so sure. And, you know, Sean Doolittle of the Washington Nationals came out and, and he just said it, he put it bluntly, he said sports should be the reward of a functioning society. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it was just a really powerful statement. And, you know, listen, I'm not one to judge. It's just a question of, is the U.S. really ready to ramp up professional sports at this stage. And I certainly wouldn't blame an athlete for feeling like they weren't. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of discussions about the cross league, like even within the NWSL, the players had an opportunity to decide, Megan Rapinoe's not playing in the tournament. Kristen Press is not playing in the tournament. Um, you know, Tobin Heath of Portland is not playing in the tournament. And these were all supported by the league commissioner, Lisa Baird, and, you know, their team supported them. They issued statements that were super simple and very succinct that this was an understanding the WNBA. I mean, there's a couple, Renee Montgomery, for example, is sitting out, you know, you have like it, it, Natasha Cloud, but they're sitting out not for reasons because of COVID, but because they want to pursue full-time activism. So irrespective of why, but we have seen athletes 
say we don't want to partake in this. And I mean, WNBA is another example, or, you know, it's going to be function similarly to the NBA bubble. And we've also seen resistance. And there are players who have, and we saw this when, you know, the Bundesliga came back and EPL started having conversations about it. They started to say, well, what about families who might have wives who are pregnant or small children or immunocompromised? And I agree with you in the not judging thing, but there's a difference between not judging and saying, I think we should be really careful. Like, would the world stop if we didn't have sports for a year and really, really took a back seat? Because I mean, the numbers are in, the more that we know about COVID-19, we understand that racialized communities are usually on the far forefront and at the head of actually catching this disease due to various factors, lack of, you know, accessibility in healthcare systems and socioeconomic status and housing arrangements. We know all this. And when you look at leagues that are predominantly racialized, you can't separate those issues. So issues of concern. I mean, one uh, NBA player, his parents both died from COVID. Like there's a lot of trauma here that we, you know, that we need to work through and we just can't expect that it go away on its own. And this whole idea, the one thing that I do hope happens is this idea of sports as entertainment. I hope that that constantly gets debunked because these aren't actors or actresses. These are people with lives who put their bodies, they're literally, I think we forget this, they use their bodies on the front line of their career. They're athletes, that's inherently what they do. But it doesn't mean that psychologically they turn up and just the other day, there was an article that came out and everybody was mocking it on Twitter. Like when I say everyone, I mean mostly the people that I follow that clearly lean left. Um, they were saying that the NBA was going to offer mental health supports because it actually knew how arduous the bubble would be and psychologically and emotionally taxing on mental health. So they were going to offer it. And I'm like, bro, if you're going to know that, then why start it up? If you already know that this entire thing is going to be bad and potentially hazardous to your players, don't do it. Be like, is that too hard of a jump? So it's, it's, it's haphazard in the way that they're going about it. I don't believe that the United States, you didn't want to judge, but seeing the numbers and the way that people conglomerate in, in, in different congregate rather in places, I find it callous and I find it dangerous and it scares me. I have parents that are immunocompromised. I'm very careful about this and we all know somebody. And I saw a tweet today, I believe, and it really struck me. And it said that, COVID-19 is like racism. It's not going to impact unless it happens to you. So basically those in power have privilege and won't care unless it affects them. I did. I, I saw uh, something on social media today that said that, you know, that this, this concern with the putting the players at risk and that it, uh, and we all know it's political and it's about revenue. Um, that the, the comment was, well, then why don't we put the owners in the bubble with the players? Yeah. <laughs> right. And we got a point. You're like, okay, so then put your money where your mouth is. Yep. Um, yeah, this is it. We're ongoing. Um, and another one, uh, let's talk about esports in the Olympics, because I do have to say, I am in the camp and I'm going on record. If I haven't, I know I've gone on record before and I'll continue to go on record over and over and over again. I am in the camp that Olympics needs esports, not the other way around. 
-hmm. They do not. We can create our own ecosystem. And I, I saw earlier that Ken Silva, I think he's still here, and Axel Lil Manis, are you in that camp or not? Because I'm not buying it. And I also, I'm going on record that if I could be in the camp that w would advocate against the Olympics getting esports, I am that person. I do not agree with it. Axel, the expert in the esports space, what do you think? Well, I, I th first of all, hi everybody. Um, yeah, for me, I, I call it I call it the Great Divide because um, they seem just like two worlds that are so far apart, and they really shouldn't be. Um, and and I think it uh, there's a it's mutually beneficial to think about how a relationship can 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 start and grow and and become um, part of the future of of what we understand the Olympics to be. And what I mean by that is when you look at the average viewer of the Olympics, it's um, right now I believe 53 years old. Uh, when you think of the average age of esports, it's 26. Um, and uh, while that seems like maybe they don't belong together, I think they're pieces of a puzzle that that, that are going to be very complementary. Um, there's a lot of things about the Olympics, for example, that esports would benefit from if it could be uh, included in a future format. And that is um, uh, obviously being on a, a, a mainstream traditional platform um, and win acceptance where where it probably doesn't doesn't right now. And on the on the flip side, the, the Olympics is going to benefit from um, being able to connect with this uh, a, a younger audience that seems to be elusive to them. And um, so you know what's what's encouraging is that at least they recognize that the Olympics that is. And in 2024 um, uh, in Paris, it's going to be a demonstrative um, a demonstration sport, or they're incorporating esports into the Olympics, but not in a medal. Uh, type scenario. It's really going to be complementary, um, running in parallel to traditional sports. Um, so think of all the things we're seeing right now in terms of athletes playing, you know, against each other or celebrities playing against each other, um, you know, for charity. Instead of charity, it's 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 for the love of the love of the games. And so part of me thinks it's a bit of a, a cop out because it still doesn't treat esports. Um, uh, in a way that it should, which is, you know, a, a community of athletes who are very good at what they do and have a massive community following around them mm -hmm. and would love to see them on a, you know, a country versus country or world world stage type format. Um, um, but, but you know what, I, I really think that, you know, the, the question uh, that needs to be answered over time is, is, you know, what will it take for esports to become mainstream, to be, be accepted in this type of format? Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm at least hopeful and encouraged to see that it's part of the 2024 Olympics. Really? Um, really, Axe? Or Axe, like, I, I, really? Was that? I, I am dead against it. Because, well, you know why, and this is, I, I'll tell you, and I'm, and I'm feisty tonight, so we got to get this going. So, um, I think it could be standalone. It just, the, my, my side on not needing the Olympics, there's so much power, there's so much control, there is so much wasted money that could be, you know, I think the evolution of mainstream can go the other way. I mean, we're, we're taking a look at, and I, I know a lot of uh, profs can't stand this word, but I, lack of better words on a summer night is the word disruption. I think that, uh, that we need to disrupt the status quo and the construct of the Olympics. I'm not against Olympics, don't get me wrong, uh, but 
to see esports go under that, the ecosystem go under that is concerning. So Axel, what, what is your argument for mainstream? I know you're, you're giving, I like it because you're giving both sides. I'm just telling you I'm against it because I think it's, it could, it, I personally think it grow bigger and better the Olympics without the Olympics. Do you, or, you know, Well, right, right, right now, I don't think the Olympics has demonstrated that they're able to grow um, using traditional, you know, the traditional powers and traditional channels. Uh, I mean, the fact that the, the viewers have been going down in recent years, Olympics after Olympics, I think is an indication that, and that the viewer is getting older, it means that young people are just are not, are, are, are not connected or engaged. So, um, and, and it's a, it's a beautiful platform to watch athletes, um, amateur athletes compete uh, you know, raw talent against raw talent. And I really don't, I really don't think that needs to exclude um, um, a lot of what, what hasn't been part of the, uh, the, the games up to this point. And, you know, some people would argue, you know, is, is dressage um, any more athletic than esports? Is, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of sports that have been embraced over the years and continue to be, um, uh, you know, um, um, allow, allow medals to be uh, awarded to, to quote unquote athletes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I believe the lines have already been blurred over the years. It's just about evolving with the times and, and welcoming new sports and trying new sports. Um, listen, the Asian games in 2020 are going to have esports as a, as a, as a metal, um, uh, as a metal type sport. So, so maybe we'll learn something from that. Um, you know, the world seems to be, you know, maybe, you know, embracing esports in ways that it hasn't up to this point. Axel, um, so just just to be clear, uh, I'm uh, just also to be clear is that the argument of uh, whether or not esport gamers are athletes or not is not even part of my equation of why I think the Olympics should not get it. I don't think the Olympics deserves it. I think it's a growing opportunity, and I think the Olympics do does not deserve esports. That's more my thought. And. I, I've heard people say they're not, um, it's not an athlete, but I, I yes, I, I like to call uh, esports participants gamers, but I also would argue that they are athletes. So um, that, that uh, if you were to look at the definition of competition and like look up the definition of an athlete, yeah, they're absolutely an athlete. Um, so that's not well, my you argument. Do, you, you do raise an interesting point on, um, you know, esports being you know able to stand on its own. Obviously, it's been able to stand on its own. It's flourishing on its own, but it can benefit from the uh, measure of sponsorship that is happening around the Olympics. And I think that is where you know, if if it can um, capitalize, that's where it's going to you know um, you know uh, strengthen itself in the future is by uh, um, uh, learning some of those um, uh, strengths and skills that that have been very much entrenched in the. Uh, Olympic mindset over the years. So, um, and, and, you know, if this does marriage doesn't happen in 2024, I think everybody believes that esports is going to be able to figure out on its own. Uh, they've already have a, a robust growing community fan base. That's not slowing down. It's a, th you know, uh, gaming is becoming a $300 billion business. Uh, it is heading in a, in, in a different trajectory than Olympics. So it really does. I would somewhat argue that the Olympics Sorry, esports doesn't need Olympics as much as Olympics needs esports, but there's still a lot that they can learn from each other and benefit each other, you know, uh, from now until 2024. Um, and uh, can I sorry. ask? Uh, it's okay. No, the, um, uh, Shireen, do you have an opinion on on this? I will uh, agree with you 
Laurel. I think that, and, and don't get me wrong, I've just come up off of reading, uh, like doing a blurb for Dr. Jules Boykoff's book called No Olympics. So I'm very swayed in that mega events generally are bad, not just from a gentrification perspective, militarization, environmental degradation. So I very much believe that the whole system is corrupt and it's of no benefit to the communities they inhabit. We don't need to look far. We need to look for like the World Cup in Rio and what happened there and what's happening even, you know, and this was all discussion around Tokyo, like 2020 not happening. But I do think that e-gaming came up and I don't know a lot about it, obviously as much as Axel does, but I also tend to agree that it can thrive on its own and it should. And I like the point that they can learn from each other, but I would really like to see esports taking what it can following that Olympic model and taking what it can from the Olympics and creating itself. Because the model of Olympics is actually not beneficial for all communities the way they present itself. It's not. It uses this old adage that it's all about equality where a very small percentage of those involved in the Olympics make the money and the communities around them are left to pick up the tab. And esports makes a lot of money. I do consider them athletes. You know, some it was the same thing. Someone was like, "Well, cheerleading cheerleading is not an athletic." Yes, it is. It definitely <laughs> is. So I'll die on this hill. Absolutely. That, that gamers are absolutely athletes. It may not be the traditional concept that people aspire to, but I'm not a huge fan of tradition. So, and I love disruption. So I think that we sort of engaging in a conversation, and it's a sport that emerged in the last 20, 30 years. So I think that, and I could be wrong in the timeline even, but I think if it can, has a chance to thrive on its own, I would love to see that. Axel, and you believe it could thrive on its own? Axel, sorry, you believe it could thrive on its own? I, I do, I do, um, and you know, I know this. I know one of the other topics is is about um, diversity inclusion, and and I don't want to kind of get into that topic just 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 yet. Um, uh, but uh, I I do believe that there's um, you know an obvious uh, intersection point between those two mm -hmm. agenda topics. Um, the the um, uh, uh, what one of the things that I, I think that uh, the esports is really targeting when it comes to uh, an Olympics uh, participation and involvement is is legitimacy. I think what that that's that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, it, it has been fighting for legitimacy, you know, for for the last few years, um, fighting for its fair share of the sponsorship dollars, fighting for its fair share of of brand investments um, to in order to fuel its growth. Um, you know, it it is. While it's flourishing in terms of the size of its communities, it is languishing a little bit in terms of its monetization strategies. And that is kind of, it's, you know, that, that's where I'm talking about where it could learn from the Olympics. Olympics is, you know, wh whether or not we agree with, you know, how that money is used and, and, and the impact it's making on the communities that host the Olympics, et cetera, um, it certainly has a strategy um, uh, um, uh, to 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 grow investment and to grow sponsorship, and that's that's uh, obviously an area of interest for for esports. So, um, you know, the, one of the other interesting things that is happening right now is this name change, team name change, and I find it very uh, wow. I'm like I'm on I, I you know I've got your energy. I have to tell you, Shireen, because I've got that spark tonight. Um, I, I am quite interested in this and I'll, I'll take the point of an academic, um, what I teach in class. And this is 
I see a couple of students on here I'll be hearing from me on this on my sport marketing class this year because we do actually do a case study on what's in a name, a case study on the uh, Bobcats, Charlotte Bobcats and Hornets. And in 2004 and five, there was a name change. And then the, then, um, uh, the Hornets, they then moved to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, they actually asked the fan base, what do you think the name should be? And there was like the, um, what was it called? The flight, the Bobcats and something else. Anyway, mm -hmm. the the name that actually got chosen was Bobcats because the owner of the franchise name was Robert and he was nicknamed Bob. So he's like, I want my name as the, the arrogance. I want my name um, in the brand. Well, that failed miserably because the fans, not only did they not want it, but <clears throat> there was issues with the owner. So there was no trust. They then moved back to Charlotte and rebranded Hornets. And it was phenomenal. And they had this, this unbelievable young man, a marketing manager named Matthew, who basically was, how do I um, start to win back the community? Charlotte being an unbelievable, steeped in history basketball community. Uh, Michael Jordan also being part of uh, the Charlotte Hornets. Changing the name, changing the brand. Uh, trying to drive more ticket sales, drive more revenue, drive people to watch the game. And it was very successful and it's more successful to this day. So a name can absolutely be changed and be branded. The thing that I find really interesting and Shireen, where I would like your opinion on is why are they evaluating? Why are they saying we are going to evaluate this? What, 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 what are they evaluating? Because committees and panels and task teams are a really great way for people in power namely rich white men to try to think that they're including other people in the process that's why it's this beautiful facade of making it it's not even beautiful it's tacky in my opinion and overdone <laughs> but to make the make the world think like you're contemplating you're consulting you don't need to consult anything the Washington NFL team, the name is a slur. And, you know, I mean, I ran into this, got into a debate with somebody and I love the CFL. I love me the CFL. I mean, I think three downs are fine. I don't need more than that. Now, I think that Edmonton has a team, it's called the Eskimos and their mascot, however, is not the visualization or depiction of an indigenous or first nations person. So just an E. So their argument was, we consulted with people. However, the people that they consulted with, they won't release the name of who they consulted with, the names of the people on, the, on that particular you know, consultation team. But, and then so the story gets spun and reported as, well, a majority of people said, no, that's not exactly, that's not concise, that's not clear, and it's not factual. And if somebody tells me that what I'm saying is offensive and hurtful to them, I'm gonna, gonna believe them, especially if it's based in history of hundreds of years. I mean, the United States and Canada, and I'm not gonna use this argument that it doesn't happen in Canada because it's not like racism stops at the border. I mean, it's man-made, borders are man-made anyway, but like this idea that what happens down there doesn't affect what happens up here, it certainly does. McGill changed the name of their teams. Is it really that difficult? And can we think of another institution as historically significant as McGill University? Come on, and if they can do it and make the young student who pushed this campaign valedictorian of the graduating class of 2020, it's possible. Um, Dan Snyder, 
is not exactly open to discussions, the owner of the Washington NFL team. And I think that that's problematic. And this idea that it took the murder of George Floyd to bring up this discussion, these, and this is one thing I do wanna talk about, is that this idea of indigenous activism is new. No, indigenous activism technically started when colonization happened. There's been resistance forever. So this idea that there's never been this pushback. And again, we get back to the first point I made in the beginning of this discussion of voiceless. It's not as if indigenous and native Americans were voiceless, they were deliberately unheard. And so task forces and committees, cause it's like, what are they gonna do? Sit down and discuss whether racism is bad? Is, is that what happens on these task forces? Is that what they do? I would love to be invited to one of them. I'm never gonna be invited to one of them. I know this, we all know this, but I would love to just be a fly on the wall and be like, is that what's happening? Is, is this the discussion that's actually taking place? And the reality is, and this is from the work I've done and not only on Muslim women and on marginalized communities around the world, when people in boardroom make, make decisions, they very seldom consult or actually have discussions with people who are being further marginalized. It doesn't happen. No. Yeah. So uh, I, I happen to agree with you. And these are some, this is some of the work actually, uh, Danica Vidato's on here who I work with one of my colleagues. She's a uh, PhD candidate at U of T and we are working uh, together on Muslim women in sport. However, mm -hmm. just, just in terms of this, um, we, we, we do talk about the people in the boardroom and Dan a couple of weeks ago, and, and there goes the dog. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Dan was saying, you know, we need, uh, uh, we were speaking specifically on this topic. It was about gender. So we were saying we need women at uh, the boardroom level and at the table. Mm -hmm. So Dan as well, like um, when they talk about Eskimos as an example, their statement that they put out, and actually it was, I'm even more curious because they use the word Aboriginal, which mm -hmm. is as opposed to indigenous um, saying that the Eskimos are consulting with the aboriginals and they don't have a problem with this and so uh, again who are you consulting with um and can we see the, the conversations can we see the transparency of this but also this is not good enough uh, dan i know you're nfl analyst and and you you know what do you think and also i mean on cfl and other sports of course you know I, personally for me i, I mean for the last five years of broadcasting sports, whether it was being as an NFL analyst or previous to that on CBC, um, I would only refer to Cleveland, Washington, and Edmonton by their city names. And that was just a stance that I took. So, I mean, I, I think the red flag, the really telling point, uh, speaking of Dan Snyder and just all the atrocities that he represents and stands for and how he's, uh, you know, brought down a once glorious winning franchise, regardless of its name, is the fact that the three minority owners on the Washington club have all are now all pursuing uh, the selling of their minority yeah. stake in the team. Yeah. I mean, but yet at the same time, Dan Snyder is allowed to exist as a high profile, high roller in the NFL. And you know, he has some pull and some sway because he is extremely wealthy and he has influence and um, to me it just comes down to and I think Shireen you nailed it it's like I would love to be a fly on the wall to go <laughs> how are these conversations going because these aren't 
constructive conversations that are taking into account what really should be and needs to be done for an institution like McGill University of higher learning and higher thinking and and you know truly that listens to arguments surrounding inclusion diversity and equity I mean they get it I, I went to McGill once upon a time and I remember going to see you know the Redmond play and it was changed and everybody was like yeah totally <laughs> it should have probably been done a long time ago and it was done for all the right reasons and everyone was on board but again it seems like this Washington example between the minority owner stake and Dan Snyder just shows some of the divisiveness that is occurring not only at the team level but certainly amongst the group of owners and they uh, I don't know if, if they really want to be able to figure it out it would need a commissioner who could stand up and say we're changing this but clearly that's not how it's done. Yeah, but Dan, we're not looking to the NFL for some type of commissioner type leadership because that's never going to happen. <laughs> well, exactly. <so. laughs> but right. I mean, one of the things too about this whole discussion on the NFL and native musketry and Jacqueline Keeler is an indigenous writer who I you look to and I've learned very much from in the United States. And she was talking about how money talks. So it wasn't until it's not as if Dan Snyder woke up and suddenly started to care about indigenous voices and native American voices. It's when FedEx was like, we don't want this because yeah. our customers don't want this. So as much as I am like the capitalist capitalist system is terrible. I'm like, no, I'm a customer and my money will talk. And there's a lot of fans out there that are saying, we don't, this is gross. And see in, in, in some type of fairness, um, because I try to do that sometimes and not be totally judgmental. There are people who simply don't know the history. And that's another product of this. There's people who genuinely don't know about the brutal colonial history in the United States and Canada. So they actually have no idea. And then they're, they're fed this notion that using that slur as a team name. And Dan, I appreciate the fact that you didn't use the name of other you know, teams and that was your personal pl pledge and that's important in sports media. And, but people were fans were taught and they're taught intergenerationally that, oh no, it was, it, it's a, it's a sign of respect. It's not, it's not a sign of respect. So there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen here and I'm hopeful that it will happen. Yeah, I agree. I, I am too. And I think if there's ever been an opportunity for this to actually change, you know, it sort of brings up the previous point when sports aren't taking place, there's actually space for these issues to kind of come to the forefront. Like sports in many ways becomes a distraction to what the issues often are. We mm -hmm. well, let's talk about the game, let's stick to sports, but no. And uh, you know, I think Laurel, you pointed out really a, a really poignant statement, like, you know, can we carry on without sports? Like, how do we fill this void? You know, I think the idea is that, that you know, we don't need sports you know, sports plays a great role, but I think it's all about taking the greatest opportunity now to make really, you know, worthwhile, important change while, while everybody is listening. And I think the other part too on this topic, I mean, this, 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 we could do a whole, I always say this, and whenever we get these topics, we could do a whole show on this topic. Um, it, it, again, it goes back, I mean, looking specifically at the NFL, if the NFL, if these teams in the NFL do not change these names, I kind of, uh, not kind of, I, 
fundamentally and absolutely and categorically, whatever word you want to use, question whether or not even they believe Black Lives Matter. And the reason why I say that is because they have an opportunity, they had an opportunity, and now this has come back again with Kaepernick many years ago, and now it's come back again. What changes are you going to make immediately? Immediately. Here is an opportunity where, by the way, this has been presented over, and I agree, Shireen, this is nothing new. This has been presented over and over again, and you have not listened, NFL. Now there's an opportunity for the NFL to listen there's a like there, there there's multiple things happening here and uh you know it to me it is it it is a decision that should have been made the moment that this got brought up make the change move on educate people on why you're making this change uh and i don't mean move on we need to talk about this we need to continue to have a voice and let the fans and the followers know why we're making this change and why it's very important to make this change and it shouldn't be that we're um, consulting and we're evaluating and deciding and whatever, and maybe we will or maybe we won't, like they've done in the past. It's 100% categorically make the change and then educate on why and change the brand and and um, and, and maybe take some, some corporate social responsibility around uh, your community to let people know why and to give back and for, for various reasons. So I... Uh, we let, well, anyway, we have to move on because we could go forever on this. I do want to talk about this for, for a moment and then we're getting into rapid fire because it's one of the most fun parts of the, the <laughs> Shireen, but I do want to talk about something that, um, that Danica and I have been working on. Um, the project title, and this is where we've got an update. So I've got, it says, uh, blank update. So we can talk about anything. We have chosen tonight to talk about Muslims, Muslim women's experience in sport and sport cultures in culture in Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, we're specifically looking at how Muslim women are portrayed and depicted in sports scholarship, um, how we may be able to shape and reshape sports and sport culture in Canada. And it's very multi-level. But the one thing that, that we're really interested in is that, um, and, and this was Danica's quote is that it's a multi-dimensional approach. Uh, sorry, this is by Palmer and Tofaletti um, scholars. Uh, but Danica had put it very, very simply. How do Muslim sportswomen participate in sports in Canada? How do Muslim sportswomen consume sports media in Canada? Mm -hmm. What impact does this have on understanding sports culture in Canada? And what impact does the representation or lack of Muslim in Muslims in sport have on Muslim sport women. That's the, that's the question I want to ask you tonight. What impact does representation or lack of of Muslims in sports have on Muslim sports women? I think. I mean, how far do you want to go back? <laughs> like, I think there's. A, you know, I've I've been really lucky. I was born in Canada, and the first role model for an athlete that I had was my own mother because she came from a family. I mean, she moved to Canada after marriage in 72, but she was super active on her campus. She was the table tennis champion of her medical school. And, you know, she brought that, you don't shed that identity when you come, you keep it with you. It's so, you know, we always worked out. My parents worked out together. They played squash together. I watched that. For me, it wasn't abnormal. My children have watched, have grown up watching me either play. They've been on the sidelines. At one point when my youngest was one, I had him in a backpack coaching while he was on my back 
So they're growing up knowing that it's normal. It's welcome. It's just normal. They don't see anything bizarre about having a mom covered or not just play. It's just not, and they've been in these circles where it's normal. So that's just been my experience, which I realize has been unique. I'm more with the younger generation and the generation that's in university now. And I think that social media has definitely something to do with it. Representation is a big thing. Like I just published my first piece for TSN last week and I got, I can't tell you, I get, I'm used to getting emails that are not nice. I'm used to getting emails uh, that are, you know, like, xenophobic, gendered Islamophobia, riddled with that. They're racist, they're misogynist, they're terrible. Um, but I have never been so heartwarmed by people saying, I cannot believe that you wrote this because I never thought somebody who looked like you or looked like me would write for some somewhere like that. So that meant a lot to me. So it's not even this idea of just sports. It's like, who's telling the stories, which will always be important. We know this. So in terms of if you can't see it, you can't be it. I don't know if I buy that because Muslim women in Canada have had to create those spaces. So they never saw it. I never saw it anywhere. Silken Lauman was my role model. I don't look anything like Silken Lauman. I mean, I love her to pieces, but she, yeah, we don't look the same. But so you look for role models of someone whose character you admire and whose resilience you want to model yourself after, right? Um, and, but now you have the opportunity, you have Nike spots with women in hijab in them. You have basketball players in, you know, at the youth sport level in college level that are playing. Um, and I'm not just talking about ones that are covered. There are young women out there who are Muslim who choose not to cover. They're still Muslims. It's not like we're saying that all Muslims only cover, which is not true at all. So I think that's important. People are talking about their identity in, in a way that they haven't before. And young women see that and they resonate, it resonates with them. So whether it's Nike coming out with, you know, a swimsuit, which again is super hyper expensive. It's $600 for the victory swimsuit. So how attainable is that? You know what I mean? But you're seeing people in places where, you know, uh, I know that I live in the region of Peel and that many years ago, they said that you can absolutely wear tights and long sleeves if you want to swim in it. Just make sure there's swim clothes or not your street clothes. So there were, which is a very fair thing to say for hygienic reasons. And it's, a, it's my swimsuit is my swimsuit. I only wear it in the water. Like it's a rash guard and um, it's swim pants. And I wear that only to swim. So that makes sense. And if you're adhering to basic levels of health of course so people see that and they get emboldened this is a thing you don't give need to give young women an opportunity you just open the crack door a little and they'll come through and that's what we've been seeing that's what i've been seeing over the last 10 years social media definitely is a huge huge thing um women are seeing themselves even though there's this whole idea that our stories are still not being told. And that's one of the reasons is definitely, I always segue into this criticism of sports media, in particular in Canada. There are stories aren't going to be told fine. That's one of the reasons I came into the industry because I wanted to do it myself. A hundred percent, I'm going to do it myself. And that's why I started to do it. Um, so I think women are starting to tell their own stories, be it TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram. They're, it's like storytelling, not in the same journalistic tradition that we know. However, it is a form of storytelling and they're gonna hold their own platform and they're gonna do, do it their own way. Now, in terms of access, 
there's been, you know, I was at U of T in 95 without aging myself too much, where we had conversations with the Benson building about the pool there and how it would be great for a women's swim because there was no windows. It's a very old building, but it was perfect to be able to use for women swimming. So we set it up every Friday from nine to 11 who had a women's swim. And guess what happened? Um, not just Muslim women showed up. There was plenty of women that just wanted women's only space to swim and they started showing up. And so we kept going for a while. I don't believe it's there anymore. Um, I was in university a long time ago. So um, I don't know what happened with that, but I know that while I was there, it became empowering for people and more people started joining and it takes word of mouth and movement. And one thing Muslim women are very good at is movement and mobilization. And that's what you see in sport. You see in Toronto, and I know, Laurel, you're very familiar with your hijabi ballers. A young woman from the East End of Toronto called me four years ago and said, um, emailed me super politely, I need your help. I'm trying to start an organization. And for the record, I get a lot of emails like this from all over the world, in particular North America. And I said, absolutely, it's in my backyard. I'll do what I can to help. She's gone on, and Amrin Kadwa and hijabi ballers have gone on to literally change the face of what athleticism and athletes can look like. And in so much as partnering with Nike, with the Raptors picking it up. So it's been, it's been beautiful to see and watch and to be part of in some way. Because when she asked, you want to ask you to be on the advisory board, she didn't have to ask me twice. I was like, of course I will. Because A, I don't have time to do all this. <laughs> and B, like, I love that the new blood is coming in and the young ones are doing it and they're doing it in a way that's relevant to their generation, but applicable to older people as well. So there's so many facets. It's not just because I've worked so hard in my career um, about inclusion of women in uniform accommodation. I spent a lot of my years writing about hijab bans in various sports at highest levels of governance in sport. So the idea that someone was starting at a grassroots level, and when I get back to change in society, it's always going to start at a grassroots level. And that's literally what she did. Textbook, GTA, let's focus on this community. And that's what we're seeing, whether it's in Minnesota, St. Paul, with a Somali community there, whether it's in California and parts of LA with different Latinx communities, we're seeing changes slowly, in, and not just in Muslim communities, but grassroots level, where I believe change happens. So. I work on global stuff, but it's really nice to see this happening in micro levels as well. And, um, you know, I'm heartened. I'm very heartened by it. Um, many years ago, my daughter, who is, was, is supposed to be going into first year, she's class, high school class of 2020, she decided to wear a hijab. And she didn't really talk to me about it. She just did it on her own. But she was playing both rep soccer and rep basketball. And at the time, FIBA had not lifted their hijab ban. So I said to her, look, kiddo, FIFA has the door open for you where basketball doesn't. So if you want to go and play in the States or you want to go pro or semi-pro, you don't have an option in basketball right now. So how many people, and those are the stories I'm still interested in, how many of the people that were sidelined? Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot. Yeah. It's it. So I met uh, Amarine Kadwa in, uh, when did I meet her? I guess in the fall of 2019, we were at a conference together and she spoke and she was telling um, um, a group of about a hundred researchers about her vision and mission for hijabi ballers. Mm -hmm. And immediately afterwards, I beelined for her and I said, we have to talk. We, I, <laughs> I, I, you, um, you know, we really determined that there was a fit because in my lab, the 
the GXS lab, our goals are for uh, greater equity for women in sport mm -hmm. and we don't discriminate. And so um, Danica and I, uh, well, first of all, Emreen and I decided that we would have the Hijabi Baller Conference at Ryerson. It made a lot of sense. And um, we also put forth various three, in fact, actually research grants um, to, to take a look at Muslim women in sport in the GTA and in Canada. And I have to say that um, I was criticized, we, we were criticized twice. Um, one, for putting the application in and not being Muslim and not winning it because they're saying, well, how do you know anything about this? And we were saying, exactly, actually, that's exactly what we want to do. We actually want to do the research on it. We have partnered with the Hijabi Ballers to teach us. I had the opportunity, I think we did it for about four or five weeks um, to sit every single Thursday night from seven to 8 p.m. or actually we usually went to like nine or 9.30 with the advisory group for the Hijabi ball, uh, Baller Conference. And wow, it was, these women are so dynamic and planning and, mm -hmm. and creating the topics and talking about the sport. Um, you know, I'm thinking everybody needs to meet these young women who are, uh, you know, wanting to educate. And, and I love it because it's in a positive way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm the one also saying like, this is, it, there are so many ways to be allies. There's mm -hmm. allies in, uh, LGBTQ, their allyship in gender, in sexuality, in race, uh, in creed. You know, there, there's so many ways to be an ally. And, you know, our research doesn't discriminate. And one of the pillars that we're interested in is in gender and diversity and women in sport and one in particular. But I was also really interested in the fact that the Raptors um, put their logo on a hijab. And then as you're saying, FIBA has said, you're not allowed to wear a hijab when you play. And so this to me looks, I look at this and say, okay, how can our research have impact? What can we learn? And how do we also eventually change FIBA? <laughs> so let's, let's all work together so that we can um, create that change. So I'm really, you know, we, we need to continue to talk about this. And I know Danica is, um, you know, working on this, but we're, uh, Dan, I did promise you nine o'clock because I know you got to go. So we could talk about this for a long time, but I do want to get to rapid fire. So our last part of the evening, it's the most fun part. Dan, the coach Berlin, it's, it's his signature piece. Axel gets esports. Dan gets rapid fire. Um, but no, Dan, uh, you know, one word answer. Sometimes he allows you a sentence, but I'm going to let <laughs> Dan take over. Dan, the coach, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll make sure. Okay, I'm unmuted. I, I will say, though, to our audience today, there has been a battle uh, underlying before the rapid fire, which has been leading up, which is going to make this really a momentous rapid fire, is that there's been a great lighting war between Shireen and myself tonight. <laughs> I, I, you have go, you've gone 15 rounds with the ring light. I had the sun setting right in oh, my face man. and I had the only way I could get by it was to create a pulsating burning station <laughs> with an overhead light. So you're ready for a little rapid fire. The rules are simple. Okay. I'll give you a question. First thing that comes to mind, you ready to go? I'm so bad at this, but yes. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You're so good. You don't even know. All right, here we go. What has pissed you off the most during COVID? Dan Snyder. Dana White. Sorry. Can I say Dana White? Can I change that? You can. Both. As long both. as you don't say Dan the Coach Berlin. No, no. Dana White. <laughs> UFC. Urgh. Yeah. Uh, and that's the sports side. Not sports side, people not wearing masks. What is about Dana White that pisses you off so much? He's reckless and doesn't care about anybody other than his pocketbook. Mm -hmm. Hey, who? 
I know it wasn't Dana White. Who's your sport? Who was your sports hero growing up? Silicon Lawman. And, 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 and um, like definitely Silicon Lawman, but Mia Hamm for soccer and Zinedine Zidane. Oh, that's way too many. I'm so sorry. Uh, that's it. A lot. Right. Yeah, you're good. You're cool. <laughs> okay. Who's your sports hero today? Uh, Nadia Nadim. Yeah. Hey, I know you talked a little bit about your TSN story and having mm -hmm. an impact on that. What sports story that you've written are you most proud of? Oof. Uh, retitling it because I didn't get to pick the title. The Globe and Mail did, but let's fire Don Cherry. Right. Um, <laughs> hey, what was the best part of performing your TED Talk? Learning about the process and confronting fear around it. Yeah. Which is interesting because I was going to ask you what was the hardest part. So you had to, what fear did you have to overcome? Um, well, memorizing 13 minutes, like I speak publicly all the time, but m doing it absolutely from memory is not something I've done in years, ever since like high school public speaking, but 13 to 17 minutes is a very long time when you're not used to it. And I think that just in doing it and being on stage in front of people was, and I don't mind being on stage, I'm fine with it, but the memory, the memorization and everything around it was, was a lot. And I was worried that I would choke. Well, I'd give <laughs> you a word, I would say seamless. Oh, thank if, you. <laughs> yeah, if you could only change one thing in professional sports, what would it be? Uh, the lack of equal pay for men and women. If you could only change one thing in amateur sport, what would that be? Not paying student athletes, I would pay them. And finally, in five words or less, what is the single most rewarding part of the work that you do? Changing sports media, what it looks like. That was seven words. I'm gonna let it go. <laughs> oh Great, amazing. That is your rapid fire segment. Thank you Monday so Monday. much. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I was still counting. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know how you do that, Dan. Thank you so much. Shereen, thank you so much for being on Sport Talks with Sport Profs. Uh, Prof Dan, the coach Berlin, Axel Lil Manis, thank you so much for joining us as an expert. And thank you everyone for joining. Shereen, have an amazing summer. I look forward to connecting with you and uh, reading your work and listening to your podcasts. All the best. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Stay safe. You too.